one of the things she said at our um, fundraiser we had last month was that why rule matters. Where do you get your, your food? Your life is impacted every day by what's happening in rural America. And she said, democracy is only as good as we demand it to be. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Cynthia Wallace, a former Democratic congressional candidate who is now co-founder of the New Rural Project, a local nonprofit working to organize a small number of rural counties in North Carolina. The progressive ecosystem is very large and includes numerous organizations like Cynthia's. Cynthia has a great perspective about what works for local organizing, and her story makes it clear how much more complex the rural world is demographically and culturally than some of the stereotypes held by national Democrats. You'll want to listen to her. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Cynthia Wallace of the New Rural Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Cynthia, how are you? Good. How are you, Nathan? Not bad. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes, I'm Cynthia Wallace. I am the executive director and co-founder of the New Rural Project. I co-founded this with my good friend Helen Probst Mills in um, April of this year. Both of us um, ran for office in 2020. I ran for the 9th Congressional District here in North Carolina. And Helen ran for North Carolina Senate 25. I had eight counties that were part of my district, and seven of them um, were a rule. And four of those um, eight counties also were ones that Helen um, ran in. And so I'm born and raised in a small town in southern um, Georgia, right outside of Savannah. Um, born into a um, political and activist family. My dad, um, was a civil rights activist and co-founded the NAACP in 1968 in our small town that was about 13% African-American. And also coming from a, a farming family, both of my grandparents on, on my mom and dad's side um, were farmers. And so um, I was laughing and say, if you, even if your parents don't farm, if your family farms, that means everyone does. So definitely did some of those things in the summers as well. And um, went to Spelman College after um, graduating from a one high school town and um, majored in math. I was a math major and then um, got my master's in statistics um, from the University of North Florida in Jacksonville and started a 25-year um, career in financial services. And that career brought me to Charlotte about 15 years ago, Charlotte, North Carolina, and I started getting politically active on my own. So without um, trying to help my dad become a county commissioner, which he served for almost 18 years in the middle of his activist work. And um, so, yeah, so I got involved here trying to help uh, an upstart Barack Obama become president and just ran into an office and said, I'm a volunteer. How can I help? And that was in 2008. Then got more involved here politically beyond um, that um, campaign and became the 9th Congressional District Chair for the Democratic Party in early 2017. And that led to my love of these counties and my reconnection with my rural roots and put my name on the ballot in 2019, but wasn't successful. So still wanted to be of service to these rural places. And that led to the start of the New Rural Project. Sounds like an 
escalating involvement in politics that you just now can't get away from. That's kind of what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that is a, a wonderful turn, I think, and also a return to your roots, I guess, if you had activist parents. So nice to see, and I hope you're really successful with New, New World Project. I wonder if I could just ask you a couple questions about that biography. And first of all, you, you mentioned your father running for county commissioner. Was that back in Georgia? So as I mentioned, he was a civil rights activist, started in NAACP in 68. He actually didn't become a county commissioner until the 80s. Not for lack of trying to run, but in running as a minority in a very majority white county, it was um, almost impossible. They sued so that um, people could um, actually only vote um, in their own district because they had to run countywide for district seats. Right. That was a common trick that was in place across the South and elsewhere. And it's still happening here, actually. Yeah. Moore County, North Carolina still has that system. My brother was county commissioner in Colorado. Did he enjoy being county commissioner once he finally Oh, yeah. That? He did yeah. it for 18 years. Wow. That is really a long <laughs> he, stretch. Yes. He, he um, served for 18 years. He definitely enjoyed it. He had opportunities to run for other things, and he was happy to serve his, his local community and make a, a big difference there. Did seeing him as a, you know, as a politician then, uh, make you think this is something I wanted to do or is that kind of a separate matter? It was really a much later in life path, I would say. Um, it definitely obviously inspired me to, you know, be an active person in political life. Like, you know, the idea of not voting wasn't a concept in my home. You know, my mom voted. My mom obviously did some work as well, but um, she taking care of us was probably a lot of her contribution to it. But yeah, so it was probably right before I came to um, to Charlotte, um, I started getting a little more involved in Georgia. I was in Atlanta. And um, when I got here, I really kind of got bitten by it and just started doing it on my own and figuring out how I could have my own place in the political atmosphere and trying to make change. Um, but yet, like I said, never missed a vote. <laughs> So that was definitely something I was always entrenched in me and did that no matter where I lived. And I lived a few different places outside before I got to Charlotte. I was kind of intrigued that you were a math major at Spelman because I come from a family of math majors. My grandmother, my grandfather, my mother. Those were early days for my grandmother, et cetera, to be math majors and math teachers. They all were that. And I think there's a different way of thinking that you get when you do a whole lot of math problems and you go on to do statistics as you did in graduate school. And obviously that gave you the skills to do the financial services career. But do you think that there's a usefulness to having a facility with numbers in politics? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I love the idea that your mother and your grandmother were math people. Always when I see a young girl, I'm like, you know, you can do well in math. And I, I think part of it also goes back to my dad. Um, you know, there were never limits placed on us. Like the idea that a girl shouldn't be good at X wasn't how I was raised. So I think the idea of learning later that maybe girls and women are supposed to be good at math. I'm like, really? Because <laughs> that never constrained me, I would say. I was just curious, like when my mom was a math major, which was at Cornell in the late 50s. There were, I think she was the only female math major. I, I, I could be wrong on that, but I think that's right. When you were at Spelman, were you one of many? Well, you know, Spelman is an all women's college. <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah. So we're historically, it's a historically black college um, and one of two for black women. So were there a lot of math majors? Oh, yeah. We had a, a really strong uh, math department. Actually, one of my classmates was the first uh, black woman to get a PhD. Um, from the University of Maryland. Cool. That's yeah. Awesome. So we had a, a strong program and I would, you know, I didn't go in to be a math major. I actually went in, that was the early days where, you know, computer science was the path for, you know, great. So I, I just started as a computer science major, but I always was very good in math. Um, I had a real good mentor in high school. 
our AP math program who really pushed me and encouraged me um, when I was actually having some self-doubt to do an AP exam. And I did it at the last minute and it helped me move a little faster in college in math. And so when I decided computer science wasn't for me, I'm like, well, I always did like math. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's kind of how that happened. But when I think about like that and even this business as well, like the new rural project, but when I really got into politics here locally, um, like I said, I, I started as an Obama volunteer. They sent an email and I actually still have it that said, there's a precinct meeting happening near you. You know, you should go. And I'm like, I'd only been here like a year or so. And I said, what's my precinct number? So I literally sent that email back <laughs> and they told me what my precinct was and where it would be. And, and so I ended up becoming a precinct chair within the next year because I just really got involved and engaged and connected here. And I started digging into numbers of the elections. Who turned out? What are our demographics? And then I um, actually became um, an officer with the um, county party. And so then I started looking at it from a county perspective. How does turnout happen? And then I became the district chair. And once again, I started looking at numbers like what's the voter turnout for all these counties? You know, what are the demographics? What are you know, the voter registration numbers are for these counties? And so that actually informed my understanding, which is a lot of what the New Rural Project is. You know, when I started looking at the numbers for this ninth congressional district back in 2017, I noticed there was a, a turnout issue. In these rural counties, there was opportunities where many of them were very progressive. A lot of Democrats would win their races, but their turnouts were was just so low that they could not help other races outside of their county. And so looking at that and even talking about that with the leaders in those counties, you know, they say, oh, we're fine. And they, they call me Miss Wallace. Miss Wallace, we're fine. And I said, yeah, but you need a few more voters to come out. And obviously saying it very delicately because they're doing a lot of hard work. And when looking at, you know, even the results of 20, um, 2020 election when, you know, I wasn't successful, but most importantly, um, there was a Supreme Court seat, the chief justice seat that was lost by 401 votes out of 5 million cast. And so when I'm looking at what happened, the populations that actually did vote historically, it wasn't black and brown and under 40 folks. So what happened exactly? So when we say, you know, when people say that this was a historic voter turnout year, it was historic, but not for everyone. So when you look at the demographics where this was historical, it was historical for white voters. African-American, Hispanic voters, actually their history was made in 2008. Their history was made in 2012. This wasn't a high water mark for them. If they had increased at that same pace, then these results would have been different, like a 401 vote race any one of these very small rural counties could have made the difference. Yeah, they came out for Barack. And they came out because he did something like that email I got. This is a presidential campaign that told Cynthia Wallace, sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina, that there was a local precinct meeting. So I think that also it's not, I mean, his name obviously was big, but yeah, it's, it's campaigning too. And it's, and it's getting to that granular level and understanding people where they are. And that's a lot of what New Rural Project is focused on doing is really understanding people where they are and then helping with their issues and concerns and hoping to increase their civic engagement. Yeah, I want to ask you to, about that congressional race, because it, it is not that many people who run for Congress across the country. It takes a, a lot of courage and effort and putting yourself out there in a way that most people aren't really comfortable with. What was the experience like for you? Um, I, I would say that what you, those things you just said, I probably, if I thought about that a little bit more, maybe I wouldn't <laughs> have run my very first campaign running for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> this was what, late 2019. I'd been three years working with these counties. Um, the 9th Congressional District, as folks may remember, um, was the place where there was actual absentee ballot fraud in the 2018 election. And so... Um, 
we had had an election every year because we had to have a redo in 2019. So I was kind of comfortable still doing my corporate job and, you know, doing this part time and working to find candidates. And I had a lot of people after the 2019 law saying, you should be the person running for this seat. And I'm like, oh, whatever, we're going to find a good person. (laughs) And then there was a moment where someone from D.C. said it to me. It wasn't just the local folks saying it. And it made me pause. And all of my excuses were, you know, the excuses that I told other candidates that they could overcome. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I sound like the people I told, you know, that you should really think about doing this. And so, you know, I probably thought about doing this at the, I'm a risk manager by trade also. So that's what I did within the financial services arena. I was in risk management for most of my career. And so I weigh risk in, you know, all these things. And so I probably weighed this run shorter than I've weighed looking in the grocery store and picking something out, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) So I jumped in. It was an impulse candidacy? (laughs) Not quite impulsive. I mean, obviously there were people who had, you know, really had been, um, I've created some great mentors over, you know, this this time. And some folks were definitely interested in me doing more. Um, But um, I definitely didn't go into the filing period thinking I was running for office. And I hadn't had a roadmap of planning to run for office. But I felt that I knew the people, I knew their issues. I wasn't doing it out of a vanity thing. It was about a heart for, and in particular, the rural folks that, you know, have been left behind by all of the, like, you know, the 40, 50 year of Republican leadership. And so I said, you know what, if not me, who, and what time am I going to do something like this? So I, I jumped in with like less than 10 days left of the race and filed the day before. It was an experience of a lifetime. It was everything you can imagine it to be. You definitely felt more open than I ever had. And it was a a challenge. Obviously, COVID happened. But I was, you know, the thing, the reasons I got in it, you know, I I felt good all through the the race. I had three um, male opponents in the primary and I got 56% of the vote. Crushed them. So I jumped in like with like literally like there was three months of campaigning. Um, but then when the, the COVID happens and you're a brand new candidate, even if you've been talking to DCCC, times are tough. <laughs> so, um, and this was one of the races that they were hoping we could flip. So I understood the importance of that. Did it seem like a winnable district? I saw that the race was on the margin of close, right? Oh, it was very, I mean, Dan McCready in 2018 probably won, but for the absentee ballot fraud. You know, he lost by what was less than 2,000 votes, you know, and um, and then in 2019, he came within about two points. So it was a very, you know, close district. They had done some things because 2019, they had to redo the lines because of court challenges. Um, and so District 8 actually looked a little bit better on paper than District 9, uh, which were the two ones that um, were the real flippable you know, opportunities here in North Carolina. There were two other seats that got flipped, but they were drawn such that a Democrat was going to win it. (laughs) So, you know, we flipped two seats that were just so democratically drawn. And there were two other ones, including nine, that there was hope that the numbers, you know, in a wave election could be won. So, yeah, so it was, you know, wasn't easy. I will say the, the pandemic, though, halted a lot of the, the strategy and the ability to really connect and be on the ground when, you know, yeah, it's hard to do field in person when you're careful as our party was about infecting people. Exactly. And I feel we did the right thing, but it's also in these rural places. It's about seeing you like really literally like seeing me like this wasn't a way to really connect to that broader number of people that I needed to reach. I have a feeling if everybody saw you that uh, you'd win that district, but what did you learn? Like you had been studying in, in a certain sense, studying the district for a while and learning about it, but by campaigning, even if you were somewhat limited by COVID, what did you learn about the people and about their politics? It's sometimes hard to, I think, for people sitting outside of a rural district like this to understand the thinking. Why, why are rural districts having Trump signs all over? Why are rural districts 
leaning more uh, Republican than they used to. What is the makeup of the district that you ran in? So, so I'll answer, I guess, the last question first. So the district um, was about, it's about 60% white. Um, and then about 18% African-American. And then the third highest population is actually Lumbee and then Hispanic. So Lumbee um, Native Americans is a significant, the third highest um, population. Um, so it's a very diverse, it goes, you know, the district starts in Charlotte, so urban. And then when you leave Charlotte, you get a little suburban right outside of um, Mecklenburg County. And then everything else is relatively rural. So I would say there are a couple reasons why I see some of the shifts that have occurred. Um, one, you know, I start talking about the Democrats. I think we've lost sight that there are voters there that we should be trying to reach. And so we're not putting any effort and focus, or if we are a limited effort and focus in, in rural America and in reaching those folks that, you know, might still have been reachable if we continued to talk to them. <laughs> we didn't let the narrative get created, you know, and we didn't counter it. We didn't counter narratives that have been created about, you know, Democrats. And then I would say the second thing is we talked about it before, rule meaning white. And I had eight counties. And of those eight counties, four of them are majority minority counties. So, you know, White voters are a smaller portion of the electorate in these counties. And so I think we also treat it as a monolith of, you know, well, this is what they all are when these folks are open to Democrats, Democratic values, and their values are aligned. And we don't understand the uniqueness of some of these places. And quite frankly, Republicans and conservatives, while we've taken our eye off them, they have not. And so in 2020, um, I actually talked to Congressman um, Hoyer a day or two after the election. And I said that what happened in my race, and when I looked at the numbers, I hadn't even looked at the numbers at a demographic level at that point. But I said every Trump child, spouse of a child, sibling <laughs> came to the counties that I was running in. They really campaigned there. They campaigned there. We sometimes think, okay, well, what they're saying is so off base, but the act of showing up means a lot to someone in a rural place. Especially if they're not hearing the other message at all. They're not coming. These visits, like it hits one paper and then it spreads across the region, even if those people didn't see it. And they read their newspaper too. We don't talk to them in the mediums too, that are still a vital part of their day-to-day. -day. It's always hard for me to hear that, but, you know, because that multiplies across the country and ends up with a more Republican state and a more Republican country than is necessary. And Then it should be. And all kinds of policy disasters because of that. And, and we just got to, we got to turn that around. What is the founding story for the new rural project for you? So I would say it is um, kind of those numbers we just talked about, but um, but it is a realization that that our country can be so much better and our rural places can prosper so much more if there was more diversity in who was engaged. And in looking at the turnout numbers, um, one of the numbers that you hear me, and it's obviously always pretty obvious that I'm a math person because I do talk a lot about numbers. But when you look at the, the turnout, you know, number of voters who turned out at our, as a percent of those who were registered, Black men under 40 in many of these rural counties that we're serving had a 35 to 40% turnout rate. That means 60, 55, 60, they didn't even vote. So, you know, that means they're totally disengaged and no one's like reaching out to them. Really, the premise of our work was that this huge number, 50, 60 percent of under 40 folks aren't voting. And then when you look at the Gulf, you know, even by older populations, black voters might have been 10 points below white voter turnout in this election. And so the results could have been vastly different 
if those folks had been energized and inspired to to turn out. And so we believe that this country can only be great if folks are fully a part of their civic obligations, I would say, responsibility. And we believe if you elect the right people, then you'll get different policies, which will change people's lives. So you're not engaging means your county and your city is not changing. <laughs> and so it's it, they go hand in hand. And so the premise for us is that that engagement is not also going to be just driven by candidates. Barack Obama is a once in a 30, 40 year candidate. And so you can't depend on that being the way you're going to get people engaged. But we believe that it is going to be educating folks. You'll see there's um, the O in our, our, our name has still dots. Because we believe that we should, we have got to connect the dots to people between their vote and how that impacts their life. And so that's literally at the core of what we we want to do is figure out how to help connect those dots so that people understand that by engaging civically or not, you're impacting your life. You know, there are people that are making these decisions that impact what happens for you and your community. What's the scope of what you're targeting. Are you working just in your district? Are you working statewide? Helen and I, we also believe that this work is based on relationships. And so, you know, we could have said, let's try to hit, there's 80, 80, 85 rural counties out of a hundred in, in North Carolina. But we do believe that this is about relationships and people really understand that you have their issues and their, their livelihood at heart. So we decided to start where we already had solid relationships, which were those seven um, rural counties that were a part of our two districts. And knowing, though, full well that this is a census year and so the lines are going to be different. And so these aren't going to be a part of a district. And so we don't talk about these as being a part of a district. These are like counties that are on the North Carolina, South Carolina border, and they're on the North Carolina side of it. They all have similar issues and you know, of these seven counties, five of the seven are in the bottom 15 in terms of economic opportunity and they're economically distressed. So there's a lot of similarity. And like I said, we start from a base of relationships and then we intended to build on those. And we were very clear. We didn't intend to go to these counties with the stack of voter registration forms and say, hey, register to vote. We wanted to go in with what are your issues and concerns? We wanted to go in like we have a three-pronged strategy that I always say begins and ends with listening. Because I think that's what we also haven't done a good job of is really listening to these rural folks. So you're organizing, not just getting out the vote. You are it's not just getting to, out the vote. It is. Yeah. Right. So what we've done this year is we actually um, have basically taken the get out the vote model and turned it into a get out the vaccine. All right. And so as I was talking to my rural friends who I always kept in touch with and, you know, and looking at how the vaccine was rolling out, it was rolling out not just because of hesitancy, because at the beginning people wanted it, like especially the older people, there was just barriers to getting the vaccine in their counties. And so we said, you know, what's an opportunity? Health equity is an issue. And it's definitely a racial issue as well when you even go into a rural place. So how do we focus on health equity and focus on helping to get the vaccine out, building partnerships with those trusted leaders in the community, building on the ones we already have, and then adding different ones so that we're building this community of folks who care about equity in health. And so we've done just that. Like we've been doing vaccine work, making them community events, so not just come in and get a shot, but like, you know, get free clothes. So building relationships with food banks, building relationships with um, like the Holla Center in Anson, which is our one of our strongest partnerships, which is a place that helps with kids and helps with their literacy. And they have a tennis program. And so we also wanted to make sure we were working with people that weren't political. Look, most people right now probably are like so tuned out on politics. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's, it can be ugly, right? And so we wanted to work with people who just cared about the community. And so that's how we are kind of building our organization. We do believe like civic education is also at the core. So 
helping people like local one-on-one, like knowing what your city council person does or your town council does, or you can actually get on your board of elections and impact where your early voting sites are that makes it more easy for people to be able to vote. So that's kind of how we're looking at it. And we asked some questions, like we've been knocking on doors. When I say we take the get out the vote and to get out the vaccine, we canvas before our events, we phone bank before our events. And then, you know, we slide in a couple questions like, are you voting in your municipal election that's happening on November 3rd when we're at that door? <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you organize it as a nonprofit? Did you create a, yes. a structure? So we're a 501c4. And did you, did you raise money? Have you been successful in that? Um, we've, we've been okay. I was talking to somebody earlier and they said they kind of accidentally raised money. We didn't just accidentally raise money. I and mean, we've definitely been able to, you know, obviously because we were part of, you know, I'm pretty close to some other groups. We've been able to get some good donors too from our campaigns. One of my top donors is someone who, you know, was a very engaged donor during my congressional race. And we had a donor event a couple days, I mean, a volunteer event a couple days ago. She volunteers too. And she said, um, her quote was, I'm so much more excited in putting my money into an organization that is on the ground working with folks every day than even just a candidate. Because I recognize that this work and these folks can only get more engaged and helped because their organizations like the New Rural Project doing this every day and not just from election date to election date. And so we do need more money, though. We don't have enough. <laughs> www.newruralproject.org is where folks can go if they want to support our work because we've got a lot of folks to reach. And we've, you know, obviously you need the right resources to do even more work than what we're doing so far. What have you found happening with all this get out the vaccine and the other work that you're doing? Do you feel like you are building a community that you're building power for the people that you're reaching? What do you see happening as a result of this effort? Oh, I 100 percent see it. Um, One of our um, our most recent event, we actually have our second dose for an event coming up on Saturday. But right before Thanksgiving, um, November, I guess it was the 20th. We had an event in a town of 500, Morven, um, in Anson County. Anson County is the one of the counties, About I think there's 10 or so, that NBC is following as bellwethers. And they've identified Anson County as one of those places because it's got a heavy African-American population and the turnout rates have been dwindling in those populations. And so that's actually, we were already working. I'm like, yeah, I could have told you, you literally said why our organization is, exists. Because if we keep, you know, our hands off these places, we're going to look around and these formerly blue counties are going to be red. And it's not going to be because they don't have the numbers. And so I say demographics is not destiny. Demographics is not destiny if we don't work to engage people. And give them a reason. So anyway, but back to our event. This is a town of 500 people. We were able to vaccinate almost 90 people. It was an event that started at 10 and we had Thanksgiving plates. We had a healthcare company giving sweet potato pies at the front door. We had free haircuts happening upstairs. People stayed all day. And it was like a community event. It really was like people were visiting and the folks who were there, they said, they're like, we've tried to get volunteers. We've tried to get people engaged and we haven't been successful like what you guys have done. That's got to feel good. Yeah. Tuesday night at the end of our um, volunteer event, Maxton, which is in Robinson, which is a heavy Lumbee um, County. He said, um, we've done an event in Maxton in October. And this gentleman who was born and raised in Maxton you know, probably in his early 70s, he said, what you guys have done here is brought together elected officials. I haven't seen connect in a long time. And so our work is also bringing people together. And the folks who offered up their facility for us to host it at no cost, they were amazed at how it turned out. And they said, we've never been able to get this many volunteers. And our volunteers are local and we're not bringing them and we bring in a few, but we're getting people local because that's the other premise of our work is we want to empower the local people. 
And so we actually have started paying canvassers because you're in these economically distressed places. They can't afford to give volunteer hours. They've got to eat and they've got to feed their family and they may work hourly. And so we are invested in bringing in economics by paying people within those counties, by hiring people within those places. And that's what a lot of these campaigns do. They like import people in and then they, the campaign's over. Those, those people are gone. We want to build up the community. And so I feel like, I mean, I really 100%, I think what we're doing is working. There's an article on us in Politics NC that said that the New World Project is doing this work the right way by not just talking, but actually serving and helping people on the ground. Is there demand for you to to grow out of the small number of counties that you are doing? You know, this is pretty pretty local work, pretty sort of hand-to-hand combat in the world of organizing. Do you feel the urge or the ability to get further outside of where you are, or, or are you going to concentrate on this for now? Well, we're eight months old. <laughs> <laughs> so we're definitely trying to get our full footing um, underneath us. I think we feel like we've got to prove the theory of our case, which is, you know, it's not by, you know, cycle to cycle work is not going to make this lasting change happen. It is by engaging, building up people in the community, hiring and investing in the people in the community to create this lasting change. What I will say, if you look at the name, it doesn't say the new North Carolina rural project. It says the new rural project. So there is definitely intention in the naming so that we we feel like this model can work beyond this area. And so we're, you know, already thinking about in the next, you know, two to three years, you know, where would we want to go next? We could obviously, our, if you had, I had a map, these are right across the South Carolina border. Those counties right across the line are exactly the same. Do you find other groups also organizing in these same counties on different policy issues or economic issues that you can collaborate with? Who else is working to to kind of organize, mobilize the people there? Well, that's actually part of um, how we decided, um, you know, to focus here. It obviously was a place where we had relationships, but we were obviously also clear that there was a deficit. We weren't tripping over other organizations already here working in these places. We weren't just kind of duplicating other folks' efforts. There are other organizations like um, the North Carolina Black Alliance um, that is doing work, but they're not necessarily in these places. So a group like that is supporting us because they were saying, you know what, you're on the ground here with obviously everybody's not having unlimited resources. We want to support your work there in areas that we are interested in but we'd like to just support you. That's happening. We're also creating, like you said, like partnerships. Um, so Common Ground, if you're unfamiliar, they have a democracy center in Union County, which is one of our, our counties. And so we're looking at partnering with them, but it's very early. Like they just launched this like maybe three or four months ago. So they're kind of new in the area as well. There's another organization, um, You Can Vote, um, which does a lot of voter registration. They do a lot of civic education. Well, our um, next vaccine event that's in two days, they're going to have a table at our event and they'll be able to register voters. They'll be checking voter registration, doing some of the civic education. So we'll be partnering with groups like that to layer them on top of what we're doing so that we're able to reach um, you know, more people. And then there are groups that have already been established. And our event is bringing, giving them an opportunity to get into Anson County and they haven't been there yet. So we're building space, too, for organizations to get engaged that may already, um, you know, be a little more established than us. When I've talked to folks in some other states, some states have a progressive donor table or a progressive organizing table to find money, to collaborate, make sure they aren't stepping on each other. Is there such a thing in North Carolina? And are you part of anything yes, like that? Yes, there is such. A, we are. And we are part of it. So, yeah. And is that, <laughs> yeah. has that been helpful? Tell me about, like trying to be part of this ecosystem. We found it um, very helpful. Obviously, we're a pretty small organization. Um, We're, you know, 
with three people hopefully going up to five to 10 to 15 and beyond, you know, in 2022. So they've definitely been helpful at making some, you know, donor connections. Um, So I would say that's been part of one of our our bigger donors that we've acquired so far. Um, Also, our ability to access the, you know, the voter files and the system, we've been able to do that through, um, you know, a partnership with them. We're fortunate because the two of us um, were kind of already in this eco space, even if not on the nonprofit side, because there are definitely a lot of things that I wasn't even aware of that existed that was helping me last year. <laughs> I've learned that when I was running for office that are now ways that were able to help us. So we already had decent connections that got us plugged into that ecosystem pretty quickly. That's good to hear. People in politics professionally, they kind of have a sense of the way the wind is blowing in their area. And around the country at this moment, it's not necessarily blowing the right way because there's just a lot of headwinds in the economy and with the pandemic lasting so long and and other challenges. But in your area, what do you feel? What do you feel compared to 2020 when you're running? Well, I mean, one, it's an quote unquote off year, right? So you know, obviously 2020, there was the urgency of there's an election in November of 2020. The whole world was only talking about practically the election, right? Um, so I think, you know, there's part of that. We're in an off year. And, but I, I think this pandemic is tiring a lot of people down. I think a lot of progressives put so much into that 2020 election because we all, you know, were concerned that the state our country was going in and that we had to, in particular, make a change at the top. And so I think people put so much into that, that it left people a little bit empty. On the opposite side, that anger and indignation, I think, provides a little more fuel than hope sometimes. (laughs) So I think that's what we're seeing on the kind of the progressive ecosystem a bit. We've already already done um, focus groups. Um, We were able to get a donor, actually, that funded our ability to talk to rural voters, infrequent rural voters, African-American, mostly under 40, Hispanic and Lumbee in direct individual conversations. And we've gotten a chance to hear from those folks that are not part of the political class, I guess, even in the rural counties, there's political class. And, you know, what we heard from them is they just want stuff done. They're getting frustrated that things aren't getting done. I mean, that is what we we heard loud and clear. I don't think any of them ever said, I care about whether this thing is bipartisan or not. (laughs) They just said, you know, things need to be done. And when you hear about, you know, listen to their issues, I don't know that their issues are at the top of the agenda that's being worked on. Like, you know, their top one was economics, was jobs, it was low wages and those kind of things. My number three, because we did this work at the end of August going into September, so it was when the Delta variant was raging. So that was obviously back top of mind. But their second biggest issue has been crime and their public, their personal safety. And I don't know if we see people working on that. Like, what are we doing nationally that says we're focused on that? What are we doing locally? And so I think that's the piece that we're, and that's why we're focused on that listening. Now we haven't figured out how we can get a, become a part of trying to help on that, but we've got to be more in tune in terms of what concerns folks, and that has to be the things that we're working on and talking about. And I I don't hear enough talking about crime and people's public and personal safety concerns. I've followed of late through this podcast a series of people who are working on the rural organizing problem in different parts of the country. One example would be another unsuccessful congressional candidate on our side, J.D. Schulten. Yeah, J.D. and I've talked. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, to what extent you've talked to people like him who are also working on the rural organizing problem on the progressive side around the country. What are you seeing happening? I'm hoping you're kind of part of renovating this part of our party. But what, what do you see going on? So there actually is more I, more work than I've seen in a long time around um, this rural issue. Um, so I'm a part of a couple of different things. Um, I'm one of the founding folks in Ruby, 
the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, which is a group of national folks, uh, you know, sharing best practices. I spoke to their group. Um, they brought other folks in to talk to us, they, you know, going over statistics and data. And there's a rural policy group that meets about once a month, I believe. And, um, you know, these are folks from across the country, you know, talking about how do we message better? How do we ensure people understand what's in, you know, Build Back Better, what's in the CARES Act? So how are we breaking these things down so that they're understood in these communities? And also, how are we tracking where that money is being spent at the local level? Because that's the other piece about some of this money. Like these counties are getting this unprecedented amount of money. But if it's not spent in a way that makes the community improve or feel it, then it'll be for for not. And so we're definitely, you know, getting pretty plugged in. I'm excited that there are other groups starting like us, but we definitely want to be keeping rule in our name because, you know, there's some other groups that are going to work on urban. I live in Charlotte, but that is not where there's not enough attention. And I talk about North Carolina, Mecklenburg, where I'm, I live. Almost all of our county commissioners are Democrats. Almost every one of our North Carolina House and Senate representative is a Democrat, except for maybe one. But if we don't expand beyond the urban places, we'll stay in the minority in the state. And those things that really need to happen to change people's lives won't happen. And so that's why we, we're focused on how do we ensure that that progressive voice that's out there, they know that there are candidates for them and they, they're incentive, incentivized to vote and inspire to, to participate. The sort of quick analysis in the newspapers, et cetera, about why Republicans are carrying the rural world has a lot to do with kind of the culture war, religious, guns, race, parental control, vaccine, trans people, the buttons that they push uh, that they think separate a more cautious or conservative rural people from the urban people. That sounds a little simple. Do you think the moves that like the the DeSantis's and the Trumps are making that are very kind of crude plays like that are what's working or do you see something else going on? It's a mixed bag, I would say. So I don't know if there's a, a simple answer to that. Definitely every Trump son, daughter, you know, girlfriend, whatever, came to the rural America in 2020 and literally just showed up and that showing up made the people feel like there is a sense of caring and connection, even if they are people from New York or California that have never lived in a rural place like somebody like me. So I think that's part of it. I do think there is a very specific methodology that tries to drive a wedge with these culture war type things. Um, and there are people like, you know, the Lumbee in, in Robinson County, they're probably a little bit more conservative. But I think what we're, we've got to do is like lean into our values. I've done some, you know, focus group work. And when you talk about, you know, people paying their fair share, when you talk about that kind of thing, people, it resonates. I was listening into a focus group um, of, was, um, I guess, more rural and suburban um, women, mostly white women. And it was a mix of more conservative and a little more progressive. It was right after Texas, um, you know, passed that restrictive um, you know, law. And across the board, those women were all like not supportive of that. Whether they were, you know, more in some of their other answers and some of their other comments. So I think we've got to the, the way we've got to reach people is where we have common values and not with those things that are divisive. You know, like you said, like the, the bathroom bill, the guy I ran against, Dan Bishop, was the author of the bathroom bill here in North Carolina. He was the architect of that. Do you think that helped him or hurt him in your race? Well, I, number one, people's memories are short. <laughs> so that had been like four or five years ago and it cost the state millions of dollars. We lost industry. Some people still haven't come back. We lost potential headquarters for big corporations because of that. But when you, I think about like, you know, 
like you said, like the trans issue, if you're in a small town, you're not as familiar with it. And it's kind of a, that thing that feels foreign, then you can be made to seem scary. Right. And so I think like even for me, I mean, up until like maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I didn't necessarily know as many transgender people as I know now. You know, I know many. And so it's like so to a non-issue for me. Right. But you can make it this wedge, scary thing. And because they're, you know, it just is not a part of their day to day lives. It can be used as a what feels like negative to many of us. It feels like a scary thing to them. And our family members who are in small towns. And I remember when that bathroom bill was going on, they they said, you know, and these are otherwise, you know, they're not conservative, you know, but why would we want to share bathroom space? Like they just didn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, it takes education. And that's what why it works for the other side, at least for a while, you know, that they they can make political hay with it, even though it's kind of a bogus issue. Right. But the other thing, though, I do think is when was when you're explaining, you're losing. Like when we have to, you have to say three sentences to explain something, then you've lost people. That's another thing that we're working on is how do we, you know, not making the language like just simple, you know, and trying to say what people can't understand. But I think we need to, you know, be relatable. Like one of the things I say all the time, like I'm, I was born and raised in rural Southern Georgia, but nobody in Southern Georgia really calls themselves rural. You know what they say? Country. Country. Yeah, like sure. I was a country cousin. And I, so I, when I talk to folks, I look, I'm like, you know, I said, look, I live in Charlotte. I said, but I grew up just like y'all. I said, how many of you all are the country cousin? And people <laughs> are like, you know what that means. And so I think we've got to also make sure that our language is approachable. And the language is the real language. Like, honestly, if I had to think about it again, I'm like, should I, should we call this the real, or the new country project? I don't know. You know, because that is really the, what they use. And so I think our language is so important. And I mean, whether you love it or hate it, make America great was simple. Right. Well, you know, and so we've just got to make sure we're, we're talking to people um, who aren't a part of the political ecosystem and they're not reading the New York Times and the Washington Post every day. Like they're going to work. They're, you know, going to their kids games, even the more, you know, quote unquote, educated folks. They're not interested in this every day. So you've got to make it in an easy way where people can clearly get your message and it's done in a relatable way to folks and it reaches them at their heart versus their mind. So does that leave you optimistic or pessimistic about the country area around you and beyond? So I'm by nature an optimist. I'm a glass half full person, number one. <laughs> So that's number one. But number two, like when I see what happened, like that event, um, you know, we did in Anson with like, I mean, it's almost 20 percent of the, the town. <laughs> and it wasn't just about the vaccine. We brought community together. And that's why people came, because obviously we're in this crazy COVID time. And there was an event that brought the community together. And so I'm hopeful that the people they're calling us, right? Like, you know, folks are reaching out to us and saying, hey, we hear what you're doing here. We'd love to work with you here or whatever you guys are doing. I want to be a part of it. I want to help get people more engaged. And also I'm hopeful because of even though Barack Obama is not going to be on the ballot again, I'm hopeful about those 2008, 2012 numbers. Like what I see there, that shows me potential. That shows me opportunity of what we can do if we pay attention. Like, how well they paid attention and sent Cynthia Wallace in Charlotte, North Carolina, an email telling her there's a precinct meeting by knowing what's happening in that community. And I believe that for, with us, by bringing in folks from the community, we can make a change. And I think what we do can be replicated in other places. We're talking to other folks and we're getting other ideas. And hopefully as, if we spread that not only across North Carolina, but across this country, we can see a difference. It's not lost. The folks are not lost. They're just sitting there waiting for somebody to try to talk to them. They're waiting for someone to say, what do you think about things? Like we had this focus group of black men, mostly under 40. And it was about an hour and a half. It went long. Like it, they went over about 10 or 15 minutes. And what I saw on that Zoom screen 
was a fraternal group kind of forming. I thought like how often people said like, we just want to hear what you think for an hour and a half as a black man. And they were like calling each other. None of these men knew each other. They're like starting to say, hey, so-and-so had something to say. And and then at the end of it, and this is where I got the hope. We did a, you know, we said, well, how, how excited are you about these municipal elections? At the beginning, they're like, eh. And then at the end, we said, one to 10, how likely are you to vote in your municipal election, your local election was coming up? And there were a few of them who had moved. One of the men said, what this has shown me is, how much I don't know and how much I really need to know more about what's happening in my own community. And so things like that gives me hope, but we've got to stay at it. Like we've got some ideas for 2022, what we're going to be doing with black men and they're the lowest voter turnout in a lot of these places. And it's because their voices just aren't being amplified in the conversation. And we're just not, listening to them and focusing on what they care about that'll drive them to get re-engaged again because they had been engaged. We just lost them. You know, just listening to you right now reinforces for me why I like doing this podcast, why I like talking to people like you. I, I find it inspiring that you're out there doing this work, learning these things, seeing change happen like that even in the small focus group where it's only a few people, that matters. And I appreciate what you're up to. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? The one thing you said, though, I did want to bring home is that, that when we think it's oh so small, but it has such a ripple effect. Like I said, we do these vaccination events and we hired a canvasser in Robinson County and the canvas, it was a week before our event. And one of the ladies who we paid, she canvassed for us. On my drive back to Charlotte, it's about a two-hour drive, she called. And they all have the New Rural Project t-shirts. And so she still had a t-shirt and she went to someone's home. And they were like, well, what is that New Rural Project? She's like, oh, I was out today knocking on doors, telling people about the vaccine event. And the person said, oh, my gosh, my, I need to get vaccinated. And these three other people. And she was so excited that her work was impacting people. So the next Saturday, we come back. We say, well, come back. We want to knock doors while we're happening. Like, we want to tell people, it's happening right now. Come out here. And we're giving it, had a free cookout too. And so she came back. And then that, a week later, she said, I've been hired by an organization that's working on vaccine education. And I say all this because like we hired her once, but now she's going to have gainful employment. And she was able to say to them, oh, yeah, I've been talking to people about COVID vaccines. And she did it with us. And the education she gets, she takes it back to her community. And then they take it back to more people. And so that's the just because we hire one person. And when we really get into our civic education, the people we're working with, they're going to be trained on civic education. That means their family's going to be trained on civic education. That means their neighbors are going to be trained on civic education. Well, those are the things that give me hope about the work we're doing. But we need more folks to get on board. I know we're working in here in North Carolina, but we believe this can happen everywhere. But we need help. NewRuralProject.org is where folks can find us. And, you know, I'm still hopeful. I mean, there are definitely days I don't have the same smile and hopeful voice, but I think we can do it, but we got to keep at it. So what do I need to do to get a t-shirt? <laughs> Give me your address and All make right. a donation. <laughs> done and done. Um, thank you. It's, it's really been an honor. Anything else you want to say? Um, I just want to say, you know, that as we, we think about this country and we've got rural and urban and suburban, and I hope we can, at some point, get rid of these labels. But rule matters. We have an awesome board. One of our honorary board members is Representative Eva Clayton. And she was the first Black woman to serve um, in Congress from North Carolina. And she's made her career focused on rural people and rural issues and amplifying their issues across this country. And one of the things she said at our um, fundraiser we had last month was that why rule matters. And she said, you know, where do you get your, your food? Where do you get, you know, from the land? Like your life is impacted every day by what's happening 
in rural America. And then there's a last thing, one thing she said, she said it was about advocacy. And she said, democracy is only as good as we demand it to be. A wonderful note on which to end. I agree with that. It is a really crucial moment and a dangerous moment in this democracy. And I hope people make it what it needs to be. Thank you. That was Cynthia Wallace. Cynthia is at newruralproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.